This podcast is sponsored by Uncanna, trusted natural solutions. Uncanna is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncanna team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncanna is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code Mentors the number four MIL at checkout at uncanna.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. Ben, you know, I want to I want to get into not only, you know, what you're doing today and everything, but I think one of the things that'll come out hopefully that's really important is just your your love of life, your um the way you attack everything and, you know, your never quit attitude. And there was a statement at some point um that I hopefully I'll get to later on about something that you had said that I seen in a quote that really stood out to me. Um, and you know, it's kind of that never quit attitude. So anyway, welcome to the mentors for military uh, podcast, man. I really appreciate you taking time to come on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm glad that we're able to finally connect and make this work. Yeah, no lie. So I want to get off into the very beginning because, um, you know, it, you grew up in, I guess, more of like a small town USA type of thing. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and I grew up uh, on Long Island in kind of just a regular uh, well, to me would seem regular suburb of New York City and, you know, kind of middle class family. My my mom didn't work. My dad was uh, worked for the state and I, you know, kind of normal childhood growing up. I didn't have. I didn't come from a military background. Um, you know, my, my grandparents fought, fought in World War II. I feel like every, like everyone else's grandparents. And, uh, I mean, dare I say, it was kind of just a normal, uh, you know, upbringing. Nothing, nothing crazy. Right, right. And, I mean, I you know, Brooklyn is not necessarily your small town. But for you, it's probably... Yeah, I mean, I look, I, I probably, I think I was, I, we moved out of Brooklyn when I was like one or two. We moved to Staten Island. And then when I was probably about four or five, we moved to Long Island to the suburbs. And um, I mean, we were still in Nassau County, uh, you know, like 20, 25 minutes from New York City. But um, yeah, it, it's not, it wasn't rural. I mean, my mom's side of the family is from uh, the middle of nowhere, North Carolina. And my dad's side is, you know, European immigrants uh, that did the whole Ellis Island thing. So oh, wow. I, I know what it's like to, to be from deep south. And uh, I, I understand what sweet tea is and barbecue <laughs> isn't just like, you know, <laughs> every region has a different type of barbecue. So I've, right. I I was well versed on being able to, to blend from tribe to tribe, which probably helped out later on being a SF guy. Uh, so in high school, you were big into sports? Yeah, so high school, I went to uh, a boarding school in uh, Virginia, and okay. it was really, it was kind of one of those things where it was like my option. Um, Military-based type of boarding school? No, no, okay. it was just a, kind of an all-boys preparatory okay. school, uh, boarding, a uh, place called Woodbury Forest, which was 
uh, about 40 minutes outside of Charlottesville down in the Virginia uh, area. And um, yeah, so one of my, my uncle had gone there, one of my cousins had gone there and it was just an option like, Hey, would you like to go? And, uh, I was getting more serious into lacrosse and I knew that the high school I would have gone to wasn't, wasn't that great at lacrosse, even though we're, it was still on Long Island, which is a huge hotbed for lacrosse. And to be honest, I, I just kind of wanted something different and new. And, um, I, I was like, yeah, I was like, I would love the opportunity. So I went to this old boys boarding school down in Virginia. Um, I played lacrosse all four years, played soccer. Um, you know, growing up, hot ice hockey was like my real true first passion. And just I got more serious in the lacrosse and it, it worked out that way. Yeah. So while you were down there, you definitely then were right in the thick of sweet tea, apple pie, mom, the yeah. whole bit. You know? One of my favorite moments is where we're – we were stretching uh, up by this this gym at school, and we would run down this big hill to the practice field. And uh, I, I hope you know not to be cult- culturally inappropriate, but some local rednecks drove by in their pickup trucks, and we're like, "Man, what's what sport is that?" And uh, another kid that was actually from like <laughs> Alexandria, DC area, was like, "It's lawn darts." And lawn we're like, darts. "Oh man, I've never seen that before." <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! It's funny you mentioned. I was like, "That's the funniest thing." Yeah, lawn darts. Anyway, because I remember those things. Those things were deadly, man. I mean, it was a long six-inch spear. Basically, you were throwing up in the air, trying to hit in a circle. Yep. You know, who the hell came up with that game? I don't know. Um, But yeah, no, I totally get it. And actually, some people, you know, in the South, me being from the South, at least growing up in the latter part of my life, um, that's an affectionate term in some this in some parts you know i I know like i said i spent um you know i would spend my summers down in north carolina and we'd always go down and visit family in north carolina and south carolina but i remember you know when i was like 12 to 14 time frame i used to live with my grandparents my uncle down in it was clinton north carolina Sampson county yeah and um uh in the poultry business so i would work on the chicken plant as like a little as a 12 year old my cousin and i and it was, you know, my summer job. And I, you know, I'm this, I'm the Yankee kid from New York that's running around and picking up chickens and doing odd jobs for, for everyone uh, at the plant. So it was definitely, it was definitely a great experience. I mean, it was like when I was in high school and I got to go live in Japan for a summer and, and oh. when I was taking Japanese and, uh, you know, culturally opened my eyes to another world out there. So it yeah. was, it was, it was life lessons. So wait, I gotta back up. So chicken farm? Do you eat chicken now? Oh yeah, totally. It's so it's so odd because see, my mother grew up on a farm, and mm-hmm. she will she will not eat chicken now. She doesn't mind the chicken broth being in there, but as far yeah. as pieces of chicken, she might have just a couple bites. She prefers red meat from all those years of having to go out kill the chicken, having to pluck it, you know, the whole bit. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a meat eater. I'll eat I'll eat whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm not picky, but I I, I totally get it. You know, yeah. Sp- having to uh, seeing how they're killed and cleaned and right. just, I can still smell the chicken plant and it's just, yeah. Eh. <laughs> yeah. We're in Japan. Uh, so the family that I stayed with was in uh, Komatsu in uh, mm-hmm. Ishigawa Ken. It was, uh, on the, I guess it would be the, the West coast on the, uh, the China sea. Okay. And I, I lived with them for about a month and just total, total immersion. Yeah. Um, they, I, I was, I guess I was two years into, I was a sophomore going to my junior year and two years of Japanese on my belt. 
I was, you know, at that time I was like a C student in Japanese and my family spoke zero English. I had, you know, two years of basic Japanese and every, every meal I would have like my little, uh, English to Japanese dictionary. They would have their little Japanese to English dictionary. And it was, it was, it was really just, uh, total immersion and it was great. You know, I, I learned so much and I still remember some Japanese from it. And I would, it, like I said, a lot of that stuff, I think it helped me as being an, a good SF guy later on. Um, I remember they picked us up at the train station and we stop at like the supermarket and, you know, with a lot of pointy talky where she tells me like, you know, pick out something that you want. And she, they got, uh, she bought a bunch of Coca-Cola. I'm not a real big soda guy. I never yeah. really was. But I, I know I know not to be rude, and I know especially in Japanese culture, that's like very taboo to be rude. Most definitely. And so, you know, at dinner and every meal, they would have the little Japanese cans of, of soda for me. And I'm like, all right, I'll just I'll drink it and not be rude. And, you know, one can went to like two, and then by like the third day, they would have like a six-pack of Coca-Cola there for me. And I was sucking down like a six-pack every meal. And finally, I went to my teacher that was with us. I was like, Sensei Pruitt, I was like, can you please explain to them I, I really don't like soda. I'm trying to be polite. I was like, we just, I was like, I got to stop this. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's quite a bit, man. I mean, you can put on a lot of pounds by uh, drinking that much soda yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, luckily it's, uh, you know, it's like those little Southeast Asia cans that yeah. are, oh. you know, like, yeah. Exactly. We use now for, um, you know, for drinks and stuff, alcohol, you know, it's a mixer yep. can. Yeah. Now. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. I got you. Well, I lived in Yokohama is the reason why I asked. I oh, was, okay. uh, but it was a small, I was a small child. My dad was in the Navy. Um, at that time frame, it was seaplanes, you know, so they were mm-hmm. based out of, uh, Yokohama. Um, I think at Sugi and in that area and stuff as well. And, uh, I think we lived on an army base, believe it or not. And, okay. None of that had any influence over whether I went into the military or not, but I do remember some very fond moments over in Japan, living on the base as well, getting off base, sneaking off, you know, stealing candy, doing kids, you know, th- kids things and everything. Yeah. And, uh, but just a lot of fun that we had over there. Surprisingly, most of my family has no desire whatsoever. It's not in their top 10, top 50 bucket list to go to Japan. So uh, one of these days, though, I hope to get back there. Have you ever gone yeah, back would, since then? No, I, I would love to go back. Um, my wife Gina and I have talked about it as definitely a place to go back and visit. Um, we'd, we'd love to try and make that happen. It was, uh, you know, besides just staying with the family for a month and every day we would go to Japanese class for like four hours a day with our, our teacher. Um, the next month we we toured around Japan and it was awesome. And I went to I went to Hiroshima and I saw the Atomic Dome and mm. went to the Atomic Museum and uh, went to Tokyo, went to Kyoto. You know, we saw everything and it was it was awesome. I, I would love to go back and um, I mean I still love I still love Japanese food just as much. So it, yeah. it would be great. Yeah. So let's uh, kind of fast forward then. Sometime after that, you ended up going to West Point. Was this one of those things that you wanted to go there because of the sports activities or, you know, what was it that kind of had you to go that so, direction? So really two things. Um, one, I, I definitely wanted to continue to play competitive lacrosse. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just kind of boiled down that I, I wanted to play Division One. I, I wanted to play at a high level. And Army was one of the teams that was recruiting me. And at the same time, while I was filling out all my college applications, you know, I'd had to say, like, well, what do you want to major in? And I'm sitting there as, a, you know, a junior in high school and thinking, 
I, I have no clue. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, yeah. I don't know. I was like, I, I, I look, I want to do college and right. do great things, but I, I, I really just want to play lacrosse and, and see where that goes. And uh, I just thought also that the, the military academies would be a, a great way to play Division One lacrosse, um, have a guaranteed job afterwards, and, you know, get five years of, of a great experience and take that to you know, carry that on to something else. And I always heard that the academy networks were, were great networks for, um, for getting jobs later on and, and trying to figure out what you want to do later on. And, uh, which, which is all true. Um, and that, that's really why I went to West Point. You know, it, it actually really boiled down to Annapolis and West Point and, hmm. um, I, I would go to the Navy lacrosse camp every year and then I went to the Army lacrosse camp and it kind of just worked out that way because for some reason those were like the two camp brochures that there were laying around in the locker room one day and I had to pick some lacrosse camps to go to. And um, one camp I went to called uh, Top 205, which was like the big high school uh, recruiting camp for lacrosse. Um, where all all the top recruits went to, and you really it was just really like a showcase, and you, you sure. know the coaches just watched you and, and recruited you out of there. My my coach for my team that week was the army coach, and that like really solidified. You know, I I loved playing for him. Um, he he loved you know he 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 wanted me to be up there, and I was like, all right, I I I feel the love, so I, that's really why I ended up going there, and uh, my I, I loved it. Um, I loved being a cadet, um, I, I, if I can go back, I'd still do it. I, I'd still go back to West Point and, and play lacrosse there. Yeah, if I'm being totally honest, um, the only time that I keep up with Army sports is when it's the Army-Navy game. Of course, when they play yeah. Air Force as well. But when it comes to something yeah. like lacrosse or any other you know sport or something there at the academy, I don't really keep up with it. So is the lacrosse really big there? I mean, is that something that's a, a major sport? Yeah, l- lacrosse is one of the major sports. You know, my... My four years there, we went to the end. We made three NCAA appearances. Um, You know, my senior year, it was either my junior or senior year, the Army Navy lacrosse game. uh, Navy was number two in the country. We were number four in the country. And, you know, the top five at the time, it was probably like Syracuse, Navy, Virginia, Army, Maryland, you know, something like that. And and we've always been a, a super competitive program. Um, and, you know, honestly, uh, with, with the uh, coach Alberici that's there now and the talent that they're recruiting, I mean, I, they're only, the, the program's only continuing to, to rise and, and to go up. So it's a, it's a pretty big deal. Um, but yeah, nobody really knows, you know, a, a lot of people don't understand, uh, lacrosse or, uh, army athletics. Um, they just know the army, army, Navy football game. Yeah. Um, which I, let me tell you, like not to, not to, to hate on the army football team, but the army football team is like God up at school and they can go, they did go like, Oh, and 13. And, you know, we're going to the NCAAs. Other teams are winning Patriot league championships, but nobody cares. As long as like, you know, you know how to, you, you, you go to the football games and you know how to sing the songs and it's all about football. So, <laughs> well, that's, that's what's so great about that game. Not to mention it's just the only game of college football on television yeah. that day, which I think is awesome. Um, but oh, totally, yeah. And, and I think, you know, when I was in the army, it was still one of those things that, you know, whether we went to West Point or not, it didn't matter. It was a service connection 
that I think is still very much relevant today. If I look around, you know, I see all these guys that they probably could care less about West Point or about Annapolis or about in the Air Force Academy and all that. But when it comes down to when those teams play one another, we consider those guys in that uniform as one of us who just strapped it on, you know, and and that's, they're they're living through, we're living, you know, or we're trying to live through them vicariously and stuff. You know, it's our, it's our opportunity. yeah. But one day out of the year, you have a football team all of a sudden to root yeah. for and like care yeah. about. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's pretty cool. I mean, the games, the games are great. There's so much tradition. Um, it's a great experience. If 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 anyone listening has never been to an Army Navy game, they should definitely go just to experience it. Oh, I've seen. Uh, I've had a guy that was uh, there every year. His son went to uh, Annapolis, and so of course we had a big Army Navy thing. Although I didn't go, but the the fact that you know his son was there and. Um, that was a big rivalry, but then I've also known some other people since then and and got to know them quite well. And that's the same thing that every single one of them says is you need to come up there and experience. It looks cold as hell, mind you, uh, when every time, you know, every time they play it, you know, it seems like it's like minus 20 and six feet of snow and all these crazy things happen that one day of the season. Of course, it's, you know, played in one of the coldest damn places there is out there as well, but that makes the game even that much better, right? Yeah. Because you're seeing everybody bundled up, freezing smoke coming out of their mouth and everything else. And this is like the gridiron you want to see, you know? Yeah. So, it's really, it's, uh, I don't know, it's almost something poetic about it where yeah. it's just, it's like the, it's really like who who wants it more, right? Yeah. Like both the, and both these teams are so equal. It's not like other bowl games where it's like, well, this year Notre Dame is kind of having like a shoddy year and, but USC is amazing and like half their team's going to get drafted by the NFL. For Army-Navy games, they're just so equal, and it's just who wants to win it more. Yeah, and man, it comes down to just that because, you know, what was a couple years back? um, I don't want to get too off track here, but it was like amazing when a team that wasn't expected to win the game won the game, and uh, that's the kind of stuff that you look for in those moments. All right, so let's go forward. You end up going through the academy, and I guess during that uh, time period, you go ahead and get branched infantry. Now, did you you go to Ranger School – while at the academy no I, you, I wasn't one of those guys okay um in fact you used to be able to do that when i was at school i don't i don't think that you were able to do that anymore all right um but uh but i, I went i did kind of like the normal uh infantry cor- uh route so went to iobc you know it was called back in the day um i guess it's called bolick now yeah um so i can't do also basic either. course and yeah. then you do ranger school right and um yeah, I, I did do airborne school as a cadet, so I, I didn't have to do that okay. before, you know, before or after ranger school. Um, so I had the experience of jumping into the different phases in ranger school. Sure. Um, instead of taking the bus down to Georgia, you know, the the, the eight hour bus ride that some people got from uh, from mountains down <laughs> right. to Florida and got a nap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, back in the desert phase, and we've said this multiple times on this show, but I know a bunch of guys that went through during desert phase when it was around, and of course, you know, they got injured. Uh, quite often mm-hmm. so you know the word was starting to spread during that time frame man if you're going to go through ranger school the best thing to do is come through and just go go as a leg get a golf you know identifier then go to airborne school after you know now it's kind of yeah. frowned upon but that's kind of the route that a lot of guys started hearing about and going um so our last yeah. guest that's the episode that's uh, out right now as a matter of fact 
was an individual that was the last class to go through the desert phase. Okay. So I was joking with him that he literally went through the last hard class because you know, <laughs> <laughs> everybody always talks about, you know, their class was the hardest. So, yeah, uh, I know. So you end up going after that to a uh, first cavalry division. Was that by choice or how did you end up getting there? Yeah, so that was by choice. Uh, so at school at, at West Point, you know, you you have branch night and you choose your branch, and then you do post night and you choose your post. And in the auditorium, in, in one of the auditoriums, they they bring in all the firsties that are branching infantry, and up on the big uh, you know blackboard in, in front, they have all the different post locations, and they just call you up, class number, you know, your class rank within that branch, and you come up and pick it and of course you know the first one to go is like hawaii and then someone picks germany and then like the next three go hawaii and then someone goes italy and so by the time that it was up to uh, my my choice and really my a lot of my friends in the lacrosse team that were branching infantry too we all figured like kind of like in a spur of a moment since we're all sitting together like hey like let's all i think we can all go to hood and so we all a good portion of us picked to go to fort hood just so that way you know, we were branching together. We might as, we were all kind of like best friends. We might as well keep on going and hanging out. So that's really why we I ended up going to Fort Hood. Um, you know, plus also I knew that I was going to be deploying. And at the time, 2005, you know, it was really Iraq was was really the the, the hot area. Right. And I was like, well, if I'm going to go, I was like, I'd rather I'd rather go do that than 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 anything else. So when you ended up going there, um, did you earn your spurs and your your Stetson. I, I didn't do I didn't do a cav ride. I, I earned my spurs and my and my Stetson because I almost like a CIB, like you know, experiencing combat in sure. a cav unit. So I never did the whole um uh what is it called? Spur ride thing, which is really just like an EIB, but like the cow the the cab specific thing. But I did all like the cab stuff, you know, the the gunnery with the twenty five mic mic and having to take apart the main gun and dealing with the bad and it's uh it was a pain in the ass and i i yeah <laughs> uh so you don't sport that any longer you don't go around just wearing the stetson just because um you know some... i think i had a pay, i think i had to pay 150 bucks for that hat and really? I probably wore it once yeah <laughs> <laughs> for, i think i wore it once for like the, the officer ball, ball. yeah ball. yeah right it. right uh, so when was it then you went on deployment was it shortly after that that you ended up going to sfas then yeah, so my deployment, I was I was one of the lucky ones to get ex my stay extended in Iraq um, <laughs> since I went through, I went during the surge, and so at month eight, um, we got extended from twelve months to fifteen months. Nice. And uh, it's funny, I remember because I was talking, I, we weren't, we were kind of dating, and I was talking to Gina, and she had emailed me and said that she had saw something about. Um, units getting extended in Iraq. And I was like, yeah, I was like, I think that's like the 82nd Airborne or something else. That, that's not us. I'll, I'll, I'll be home in four months. Right. And then like 24 hours later, we got, you know, the company commander brought us all in and like, all right, guys, circle it up. And like he read read that letter saying that we've all been extended another three months. And yeah. I was like, ah, yeah. all right. <laughs> so, yeah. So I spent, spent 15 months in Iraq from uh, 06 to 07. And w while I was there, I was actually lucky enough to be uh, on a small fire base, a uh, place called Firebase Palawada, outside of the actual city of Balad. So yeah. it's like 40 minutes west of the Balad Air Base, LSA Anaconda. And there was a, an ODA there. And uh, they actually 
you know, I, I, I befriended them and I was friends with the, one of the team leaders and, you know, you're there for 15 months. So I went through three different ODAs while they were there. And the 10th group guys, we actually did a couple of missions with and flew in on 160th birds with them and did outer cordon and, and, uh, worked with them. And I was like, you know, I, I thought about doing Ranger Regiment or Special Forces mm-hmm. uh, after my infantry PL time, um, but this this is what I want to do. Like this this seems like the varsity, and if I'm going to do it, I want to I want to be doing it like 110. percent And this this is it. Yeah. And so I was lucky enough to have that experience. And then, you know, while I was deployed, I put my packet in for SFAS. And as an officer, you actually have to get you, you submit your packet and then you have to be selected, uh, even to attend SFAS. So I, I mm. know some West Point classmates that weren't even, uh, weren't even selected to, to go. And when I came back from that deployment, uh, went, you know, trained up for a couple of months and then went to SFAS in, uh, July. Okay. So it was, uh, it, it was, I, it was, uh, it was, it was something. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, how? Well, um, you know, it's, it was interesting because really only like day one, do they really yell at you and, you know, like play, you know, hut, 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 like, uh, you know, yelling at you the rest. So when I went to, um, they never had done summer classes before, but because of the op tempo of the G watt and just that was a 750 ramp up too, I think time period. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So so they started doing summer uh, classes and I was actually the first uh, July July class to go. And what they did, which I'm sure it briefs very well on PowerPoint, but in the reality of it, it doesn't really work out that way. They, we reverse cycled. So all of the very physically demanding training events, the runs, uh, the rucks, uh, obstacle course stuff, you know, with the, the nasty Nick, we did at night. And then from the hours of like, 11 o'clock to 1500 you slept in the big tents right and that was like your downtime and recovery which oh that sounds great you know the math adds up but in reality you're sitting in the you know you're already smoked and physically taxed and mentally tired and you know while you're trying to get rest and recovery you're sitting in these uh giant like tents you know those gp mediums which are just like easy bake ovens and you're sweating and dehydrated and then you have to go and do, you know, that the, whatever the task is like that evening and you would be up. And so like your your sleep cycles all effed up. You're not getting enough rest. You're not getting enough fluid. So, I mean, I don't know if they, they're really the Jedi masters and they, they did that on purpose. And they, they really it was a real selection. Um, but but yeah, it was tough. I mean, I remember, you know, unfortunately in my class, there was a kid that, that died from uh, uh, tech. You know, he, he passed away uh, that that selection class. And, um, it, it was, a, it was tough. It was really hot. Um, you know, they did, I'm sure maybe you've seen it on discovery channel two weeks in hell. I think it was called or 14 days in hell. No. Um, it, it, so I don't think the entire series is on there, but it was like little clips. And, you know, of course they have like the log and rifle PT that they, they love showing where you're throwing up in the pit. Yeah. Always. And, um, yeah. <laughs> um, but that, that I, I, I saw that later on and I was like, oh, I know I remember all those instructors. Those were my instructors that went through and graded me when I was going through SFAS. That time frame, our recent guest, Rick Hawk, was at Camp McCall. Does that name sound familiar to you? H-O-G-G, two G's? No, it doesn't. But to be honest, uh, I run into guys all the time that were like in my selection class, right? Like I'm This guy was an instructor. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I, E7. I that name doesn't sound familiar. I, okay. You know, it's one of those things where if I saw his face, I'd be like, oh, I remember that guy. Yeah. But uh, the, the name the name doesn't ring a bell. Well, he, I'll uh, I'll send you his photo. He um I noticed on a couple of his Instagram posts and everything, guys would chime in and go, "Oh my god, I remember you with the bullhorn and everything. You were that dude, you know." So, I'll send you oh, his okay. photo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I'm sure you'll uh, you'll remember once you see his face. So yeah. you went through the last hard class in of SFAS then. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely <laughs> went through the last hard class. You know, talking about like the resiliency thing, I feel like that's yeah, that's definitely something that they test and they look for, and right. they really they really bring to the surface like that aspect. Um, it's just, it's like I said, really only day one or two are they like yelling at you and the rest it's like, Hey, the instruction, the instructions are on the board. You either do what you need, like do what you're instructed and you follow through and give it your all. Right. And we, we can see this and we track it over two weeks and we're always watching or you don't. And if you don't, you know, you do, thank you for trying, you know, thanks for coming out. Yeah. Go do great things. Yep. So after that though, what was it? Uh, advanced course that you went through? Uh, before yep. you went so back after, to Q? After, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So after uh, selection, I went back to uh, Fort Hood. Um, and then from Fort Hood, I went to Fort Benning for uh, the advanced course um, and and did that for a couple months. And then I started the Special Forces Qualification course in January of 2009. Ooh, brutal in North Carolina. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I did it. And coming from New York, I actually didn't realize how cold it got in North Carolina. <laughs> yeah. Well, Virginia is pretty damn close, so you know you didn't you didn't have cold winters there in Virginia yeah. as well. Okay, going into high school. Well, I, I yeah, I, I did. Um, I guess it's just all my memories of North Carolina was the hot, humid uh, summer sure. as like a twelve year old kid, and I had just done selection <laughs> down there in July and. Um, I just, yeah, I was like, man, it, it gets cold, you yeah. know, and we, we got snowstorms and everything. Oh uh, yeah. That, that's what I was saying. That had to be brutal. Um, so in 2010 is when you complete everything and end up getting your green beret. And did you select, um, seventh special forces group or how did that work out for you? I did. So during, uh, I believe it was at the end of SFAS, probably like the last day or two when you find out that you got selected, uh, you you put your wish list down, and I I chose seventh group because uh, I I I wanted to go down to, to Central and South America. I thought the you know the narco terrorism mission was interesting, and the stuff that we've been doing down in Colombia for the past fifty some odd years, you know, with the Colombian government against the FARC and uh, that that whole area of operations that was interesting to me. Um, plus, I went to Afghanistan, and I had just spent fifteen months straight in Iraq, and it just, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was go back and be like, oh, Baghdad again. That's yeah. great. I, yeah, I used to get kebabs over there. You know, like <laughs> I, I, I was just here. So, so yeah, I just, I, I really wanted to do something different and experience something else. I would have thought with Japan and with the fact that you met the 10th guys that you'd have gone either fifth or 10th instead of seventh. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd tell you what, looking back on it, I joke about it. If I could do it again, I probably would have went 10th group and either tried to get to Germany or out to Colorado just because I've, I've, I've discovered like this love for skiing mm -hmm. and, um, I, I probably would have done it that way, but I, I was, seventh group was great. The red empire, yep. um, you know, learn Spanish and, uh, 
just I never got the chance to go down south. I just kept deploying back to back and con- continuously going to Afghanistan. <laughs> oh my God! So you never got it? Okay, I was going to ask you yeah. about that. Never got a chance then to go to South America. Okay. No, I never did a J set down south, and um, but I will say the Spanish did come in handy because whenever we were in front of our partner force or talking, you know, with other Afghans. Um, you know, they've been around Americans for the past 10 some odd years by the time I got there. So being able to switch to Spanish when it came to, you know, something that was OPSEC related, that, that would actually helped. Yeah. I'm from the area there that, uh, you know, seventh groups at, um, Milton, Florida, that's where I grew up. Yeah. So not that far away from Fort Walton beach and the whole area there, Vagland, Herbert field. And um, I need to get back down there, actually, to get to 7 Special Forces Group. We had talked at some point about getting in there and talking to some of the guys there on active duty. So hopefully that'll occur. And uh, But for you, you know, you ended up getting de- uh, deployed over there. And take me to, you know, um, 2011, I think it was, you came back and you had a, a son that was born, or your first child, uh, Peyton. And, yeah. and then um, right after that, you had to go back again. Yep. Yeah. And, um, so I did the surge in Iraq, so might, might as well do the surge in Afghanistan. And, um, you know, my first deployment to Afghanistan, 2010 to 2011, we also got extended to, to, from a six month deployment to a nine month deployment and then came back. I think we had, you know, 30 days leave. Um, and then the cycle just started up again. And that's just kind of the nature of the job, especially in special operations. You're just continuously going and when you're not deployed you're preparing to deploy right so um we 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 our pre-deployment training was actually out in uh el paso at fort bliss um i forget the name it was actually in new mexico uh we drove like 100 miles west from el paso and went to this uh, training facility out in new mexico out in the middle of the desert and did our pre-mission training there and and then just deployed right back into it um January of uh, 2012, that that very first week, and they sent you out to Kandahar. Yeah, so this time I was out in Kandahar, uh, deployed to Panjoy District, and um, I mean it was just another another real shitty area. Um, I was we were at the uh, the district center. Um, the team that we had replaced, they actually lost their team sergeant. Um, like really bad, like stepped on an IED and just uh, like really bad, like killed him instantly. Guy named uh, Ben Bittner, um, third group guy, and they they had taken a a, a lot of casualties, uh, whether it was from guys stepping on IEDs or just uh, from gunshot wounds from firefights. So it was a, a super kinetic area. Yeah, and a lot of IEDs in that area. And so five months into this whole thing, you know, you find yourself yeah. in a very similar situation. Tell us about that. Yeah, so, you know, dismounted patrol, um, and uh, I just remember kind of walking through the the doorway of one of these big Afghan compounds and just kind of took two steps, and then, bam, like the next thing I know, I'm, I'm laying on the ground, and uh, I just, it, it was such a, such a quick, like, on-off, like, light switch from everything was normal to just, just utter, utter chaos and kind of, like, panic, and... My head was ringing. Um, I mean, I remember it just felt like 
the the reverberation like through my body of like the shock wave it was kind of like if you ever hit a a, a baseball like a aluminum baseball bat like kind of short yeah you, know, you get that kind of like vibration sting. yeah yeah it was i just felt that like all the way through my body to like my teeth mm. and uh, my head was ringing and i uh, i i couldn't breathe because my you know just got the wind knocked out of me and it was just a, a this like cloud of dust um and i remember laying there and I, I'd kind of go like in and out of it, and I would. I remembered, I couldn't see it, uh, but I remember hearing one of the infantry uplift kids that were attached to us, uh, like standing over me, or like over me, or oh, I guess it was over me. I thought he was over. I thought someone else had got injured. Originally, I was like, I'm on the ground. I know something bad has happened. You know, right away, I was like, I'm not. I'm not in like crazy pain. So maybe I kind of just got thrown a mortar. Maybe maybe they launched. They saw us walking to the village. I got a mortar. I caught like the back end of a mortar. You know, sure. like I'm, I probably got some shrapnel on me. I just don't know it yet. But like, um, everything's cool. I'm just gonna lay here for a minute, like just kind of gather myself. And you know, I hear I heard someone else screaming, just bloody murder. And I was like, oh shit, somebody somebody really got effed up. And I heard uh, this like thick southern accent. Um, it sounded like he was leaning over me, which I'm sure he was like, oh, my God, holy shit. Oh, my God. And I was like, oh, he must be looking at whomever was right behind me about to walk through this doorway. And uh, I mean, it, it was me. I, I didn't realize it, but it was me like, you know, Man. yelling and freaking out. And um, <clears throat> and it, I remember it got uh, it was just like super chaotic and it got it just got more like more panicky and more chaos and more panicky and more chaos. And I had like, it was like this epiphany when I really needed it of this, um, this like three by five photo I had back in my uh, chew in my room back at the fire base of my, of, of Gina and Peyton. And it was, you know, him as this nine month old year, you know, nine month old little baby and, and Gina was holding him and, uh, it was like up on the wall and it just felt like, I was like in the photo and it just ha- it was like this moment of clarity where it was like wow. I just I remember saying their names like over and over again almost like a mantra and it was like Gina and Peyton Gina and Peyton and it uh it just like helped me stay with it and I just knew I just felt like I don't know what's going on I was in complete chaos but all I know is I'm going to stay here and be with it um and because I'm I because of Gina and Peyton and it just you know and it, it felt like an eternity it, in reality from like the moment that I stepped on the IED until I got put on the medevac helicopter it was like ten to fifteen minutes and um, there just came to a point where it felt like it just really like my giving up point and uh, I always equate it to if you ever go if you're ever like in the pool and you like want to see how long you can hold your breath and there just comes that point where you're like all right I gotta I gotta breathe. Uh, it was like the exact opposite where it was just like, I gotta like, I, I can't, I'm, I'm, I gotta let go. Like I'm, I'm holding on, I'm slipping to whatever I'm grasping onto, but I'm, I'm about to let go. And, uh, I thought I said out loud, but they, my medic told me I, I was just, I, I didn't say anything coherent. Um, sorry, Gina. Cause I just like, I knew that something bad was happening and I was just like, well, it just hopefully they'll let her, let them know that like that was like the last thing I said. Yeah. And um, and then uh, really I I woke up uh, three days later in Germany, and um, I just you know 
what had happened was I stepped on the IED, they got to me, it kind of kicked off this whole uh, ambush, and they, they had a fire and maneuver to get to me. And um, my two special forces teammates, they did a you know textbook job and all the PMT training and stuff that we did of putting tourniquets on each other and IVs and, and working on one another. And, um, you know, everyone, everyone had the little five W that I created and we, you know, knew everyone's battle roster numbers, the medevac, my, my warrant was able to call the medevac right away. And he knew they knew where to, you know, put the birds cause we had already picked the, the medevac HLZs and did, you know, everything that green berets are supposed to do for stuff like this. Right. And, um, so they, they put me on the bird and medevac me and, um, you know, the docs told my wife later on that there's really only two reasons I was alive. One, my teammates did this textbook job of just turning you know putting tourniquets all over my body and, and keeping me alive and uh the second was just i had a, a strong heart and will to live and they told gina they're like look you can do everything medically perfect in a situation like this but at the end of the day it really just comes up to the patient and so so i, I wake up in launch stool and uh it just felt like my five senses had been reset you know one moment I was walking, I was in Afghanistan, then I'm dealing with this chaotic situation. Now everything is fuzzy. I'm super dehydrated and thirsty from all the narcs they've been pumping into me and I haven't drank anything in three days. Um, I got no idea what's going on. I was just going to ask, feel, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, no, uh, what, what was the time of which you, you knew the severity of your injuries? I'm, I'm getting to that right now. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. And so... And so, you know, so I, I feel, I feel like this female presence next to me and, um, I, I assume it's the nurse or doctor and she, you know, they've, they've woken me up and, um, she says, Captain Harrow, do you know where you are? I'm like, no, she's like, you're in launch duel. So right away I, I, I start to have a little like panic because the most serious injuries go to launch duel. And like, so something, whatever happens, something bad has happened. And she, you know, she, I think she said, you know, do you know, do you know what had happened? And I said, no, she said, you stepped on an IED. And I said, I feel like right away, I was like, well, did I lose a leg thinking right away? I'm like, all right, I, I lost, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a single BK, you know, like, you know, I, I don't want to curse, but like, you know, shoot, but <laughs> I, I'll, I can get through this. Yeah. And she's like, well, I'm sorry, you lost both legs above the knee. And I was, I was quiet for a second and I asked, I was like, all right, do I still have my dick? And she's like, you know, yep, you still got that. Like kind of taken aback that like, that was my second question. And I was like, all right. And I'm like starting to run down the list now. I'm like, do you have my arms? Cause I, I still, you know, I can't see, I can't move. I'm just still, like coming to, she's like, yeah, you know, you've, you suffered, you suffered significant uh, soft tissue uh, damage to your right arm and. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, but you lost two fingers on your right hand, but the doctors are going to save your right arm. And I was like, all right, uh, you know, hand, fing or two fingers, but but I still got my dick, right? Like I was like double checking. <laughs> and she's like, yep. And she's like, I remember she was just like this weird, I feel like she was like smiling or laughing at me, but like I, I couldn't see, it just felt that way. And she's like, yep, you still have that. And I was like, okay. And I just, I passed back out. And then really launch stool was just a bunch of different, like memories that I have kind of like coming in and out of like uh, deep sleep consciousness, you know, I was all narked up and, um, had 
crazy infections going on and and you know i had a fever of like 104 or 105 and they had to pack me on ice and Jeez. um you know gene they told gina or gina was like all right like when do i go to germany to meet him yeah and they're like well you know to be honest like he's not he's not really fully stable yet so you could be you could be flying there and he could end up dying and you won't know until like you won't you won't even be at dover to receive the body so they told her like you know you can't come to germany wow and then um i was in germany for uh, two, probably three days, two to three days. And then I was stable enough to, to make the flight back to Walter Reed. Mm. And that was the first yeah. time that you and Gina saw one another. Yeah. So the first time Gina and I saw one another was at Walter Reed. Um, and actually I knew, I think that the day of, or before, just cause I had no sense of time, they told me I was going back to Walter Reed and my and Gina was going to be there. My family was going to be there. And I still had, you know, my special forces Afghan beard. And uh, I asked them if they could shave me just because I remember Gina hated when I ever had to grow my beard. So I was like, well, I really effed this up. So I might as well like show up clean shaven. And uh, so I remember someone like shaving me and I got to Walter Reed and um, the flight there. I just remember like coming in and out and being super thirsty and begging for water. And somebody gave me some Gatorade. And I remember just throwing up all over myself. And it was just a, a hot mess. And uh, I remember being loaded into like the ambulance with like another stretcher. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't like look up to see what was going around, like going on. And um, we get to Walter Reed. I remember getting wheeled out of the ambulance. And seeing like almost like a like it was weird like I'm getting I'm getting wheeled by and I look over to my right and I see like everyone kind of standing there, and I think I you know I said hi, and then we go into the I'm in the elevator uh, about to get taken up to you know the trauma center and you know maybe into getting ready for to go into a, a OR the next day for washouts, and I think the first thing I said to Gina was I looked to her and I go well. I guess my dreams of being a calf model are shot. And she was like, she goes, she just, she was like so embarrassed. She's like, she told me, she tells me later, like when we talk about that, she's like, I'm so embarrassed for you that you said that. Like everyone in the elevator just looked at me and she just like shrugged her shoulders. And she's like, you know, Ben's an idiot. Like she's just, uh, that's awesome though. And yeah. And you know, I think, I, I think also, you know, that and then when she really got to, to talk to me, um, you know, she told everybody because everyone was calling her right away, like, how's Ben doing? How's Ben doing? She's like, you know, it's weird. It's like, it's Ben. It's just Ben without legs. And it's, you know, and so I think that she was really glad to see that mentally I was still there. And it was just, you know, it was it was me. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, um probably one of the toughest things I think that any person would ha could go through is waking up and realizing, you know, that you have lost something, especially you being an athlete that's so critical or so important, but then also having, you know, coming to grips with the situation quickly, knowing that you've got yeah. to move past that, knowing you've got to move out of the funk, you got to clear the fog, but not only that, but you were trying to make light of the situation with your wife so that you could calm her as she's coming into this situation. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I felt, I felt more, I felt more bad for, for her and like, than like more, than like more woe is me. Yeah. Um, I mean, and look, I definitely that first week or two or maybe even month, I definitely had my moments where I, I broke down and cried to her and 
um, you know, had my silent moments where I just broke down and cried because like you said, you know, I was, I was, I was always an athlete. I was a college athlete. I was a tactical athlete. I was a yeah. green beret. And now, now I'm sitting in this hospital bed and I can't, you know, both my arms are, t- you know, everything was broken. I had wires coming out of my fingers. They didn't know how much mobility I was going to get back in my right arm. Um, I, I was, I, I was, I was just a shell of myself. You know, I was, I, I, I think I, you know, when I stepped on the bomb, I was 215 pounds. By the time I got out of the hospital two months in, I was like 135, like starting the whole process of getting mm. back in shape again. Holy cow. And, and, you know, honestly, um, it was, it was tough. And I, I had my moments where I, 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 it was just, a that, that realization of like, I, I, I tell people, you know, losing your legs is like losing your two best friends that every day you woke up and spent every day with. And, um, it, it was tough. And, uh, but I, I don't know, it's, you know, we talk about the resiliency piece and, and who I am. Um, I, I dealt with it and kind of met it head on in the beginning. And it was like, all right, you know, this is crazy and this is an effed up situation, but I, I got to figure out like what's next and like what's, what I got to do to, to get up and start walking and how am I going to be a dad? And I know I'm going to have to figure out what I'm going to do for a job. And I know, you know, that's like my 300 meter target, but like I got like my 25 and 10 or 20, you know, 25, 50, hundred meter targets to deal with right now. And that's really what I kind of got to get through. So what were some of the things that the doctor said? Cause I don't think they gave you very promising information, right? About what your progress is going to be, or at least <clears throat> how quickly you could bounce back. Yeah. I mean, well, it's like, so the first thing was I, I felt like the first thing I had to do was kind of like get, get mentally back with it. And, you know, my first two weeks in the hospital, my first two weeks in the hospital, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I was going in for washouts and cause I had, you know, four bacterial infections and a fungal infection from all the dirt blown up into me. Mm. And so with that, I have, I was on all these different narcotics, um, you know, to combat the nerve pain and, um, you know, just the pain of the amputations and everything. And so I was on two different types of Oxycontin. I was on, um, ketamine at one point. And then to wean me off the ketamine, they were giving me methadone and like methadone, they give to heroin addicts to get them God, off of heroin. Yes. God. <clears throat> and then I was on like different types of nerve. I mean, every day I remember they come in with my little thing of, co- you know, pills to take. And, uh, about week four when, uh, I wasn't going in for surgery as much. Uh, it was like a moment of clarity where I was like, you know, I'm hooked up to the morphine. I'm taking all these narcotics. Like, I just don't feel like myself. And I, like, I want to get going. Like, I, I just, I need, I need to, like, I got to start, like, somewhere. And I think this is where I should start. And so I just stopped taking my narcotics, like cold turkey. And the the doctors came in the next morning doing the rounds. And they're like, you know, Captain Harrow, like, everything all right? Like, you're, the, the nurses said you refused to take your pain pills. And I was like, well, everything is not all right. You know, obviously there, I got some stuff going on, but I just, I don't want to take the pain pills anymore. And you can unhook this morphine right now too, like while we're at it. And they're like, well, look, don't be the overly macho green beret and think that you could just, you know, do go cold turkey. Um, you know, like we're going to, we can't make you take the pain pills, but if you need it, like by all means, like please take it. That's what they're there for. And I was like, all right, look, I get it. I understand, I understand pain management and keeping my heart rate low to help the healing process. But like, I'm ready to get going. And they were just like, all right, you know, I roll, here we go again. Like a, and another SF guy thinking that they're just going to John Rambo this thing and, and conquer it. 
And, um, you know, that first week off of narcs was just, I think the hardest thing was more the, like the chemical part of it, you know, like going off of narcotics and sure. I would, I would have withdrawal. I would, I would throw up in the morning. I, did, I had like loss of appetite. I wasn't sleeping. I was like sweating like crazy. And, um, typically you know, the, they, they titrate it down usually, you know, so that yeah. you don't have to go through that as much. Exactly. And, um, and then, you know, I, I had to deal with, uh, like the, the nerve pain of just my brain freaking out because it would be sending signals down to my lower appendages and it wouldn't, you know, nothing would reply back. So it would just response would be pain. And I remember, you know, at night while I, was, I couldn't sleep during that week, Gina would be like tap, tapping my head or massaging my shoulders, just anything really to have my brain focus on something else, like the tapping sensation on my, my, on my head or massaging my shoulders and like, you know, focusing on where my, my feet were. And it honestly, it, it took about three or four days and I was kind of able to almost felt like break through this plateau. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. like, I don't have these like crazy bouts of pain that I had, you know, 72 hours ago. It's just, I'm just here, you know, a, a human torso and like ready. I I'm good. Like let's, let's start like the, with the next project. And, um, so I, I kicked all my narcotics after four weeks and, uh, like the nurses and doctors were like, I have never seen That's anybody, amazing. uh, do that. And to be honest, like, uh, they, when I first got in, they told Gina, I'd probably be like, you know, four to six months inpatient and doing the normal process before I then moved on to, uh, outpatient therapy and prosthetics and that whole game. I got out of uh, the hospital in two months, and I think that really a big piece of that was I just forced myself off the narc so quick, and my body could just focus on healing, and I could get on with uh, the next big the next big crucible, which yeah. uh, was trying to figure out prosthetics and learning to walk. And you know, for me, I I, I stepped on the device on my right side, and, and so much of my right femur had got taken off on the blast. Um, regular prosthetics didn't didn't fit me, and I would have to wear this like cumbersome belt and I couldn't wear full size prosthetics. I was, I felt like I was always stuck on the little short training legs mm -hmm. and, um, it was super frustrating. And I told Gina one time, I was like, you know, it feels like, uh, it, it feels like it's the magician. It's not the magician. It's the wand. Like I don't have the equipment, like mentally I'm ready to go. I just, I'm not giving, I don't have the equipment or like, I'm, I don't, I don't have it. And the doctors at the hospital and some of the therapists were kind of gave me this like, I call it like the seven year old kid with cancer type attitude of like, well, um, at least you're alive, you know. And I was like, look, I, I get it, I'm alive, and this is great, and I'm I'm sitting in this wheelchair and I'm ready to get up and start walking, but you're not helping. And if you're not helping, then you're not part of the process, and I'm gonna have to like wheel around you and find somebody that's like willing to help. And um, and so we're we're down in Florida that Thanksgiving at my in-laws and I brought my little training legs down there and I'm, I'm trying to walk around and just, I'm doing everything I can to, to practice learning how to walk again and get my balance and stability and the whole process. And my right leg keeps popping out of the socket and I'm so frustrated with it. <clears throat> and Gina, I'm talking to Gina and just like having a heart to heart with her. I'm like, you know, what the hell? Like, I, is this like, is this it? Like how I feel like I'm ready. To, this can't be it. Like I feel like I'm missing something. This can't be it. 
And she's like, well, you know, like, what's the problem? And I was like, well, my right leg keeps falling off. And she's like, well, can the doctors do anything for you at the hospital? I was like, well, it's Walter Reed. They deal with this stuff all the time. I figure they would, they'd be giving me solutions. And she's like, well, you know, can they grow the, grow your bone, like grow your leg anyhow, like grow the bone? And I was like, I, I have no idea. They, they should, I, I would think that they would tell me about it. And she's like, well, I saw this show on TLC um, where these little people, they, they, to be taller, they, they went through this surgery and now they gained a couple of inches of height. And I, you know, the, the New Yorker and me is going to come out with saying this and I hate to say it, but I'll, I'll tell you verbatim. I was like, Gina, I'm a fucking amputee, not a midget. I was like, this doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't equate. And she's like, well, you know, it's something there. And so really with that impetus, um, I became a subject matter expert on uh, orthopedic surgery and what's called osseodistraction. And that, that week, like while we were down in Florida, I was constantly on my phone Googling like, all right, what's bone lengthening? Like who's doing bone lengthening? Like where's, how did this start? And really I found out that a lot of women in like Russia and China that wanted to go off and be models and make themselves a little taller were paying to get their shin bones broken and they would stretch out the break over a course of like what? six to nine months, gain like three to four inches of height. And, you know, try and go do their thing. And I was like, well, if they can do this to a tib and a fib, why not a femur? And yeah. I, I posed that question to my my docs back at Walter Reed when we came back. And they're like, well, we know the process. And they're like, well, normally we only use that. Like, we've never done that on an amputee. Normally we use that process to correct, like, a major fracture and, like, realign bone. And, um, and they put me in touch with a doctor uh, up in Baltimore who's like the American guru of osseodistraction using um, uh, external fixators, right? You know, really just like a giant uh, bear trap on your yeah. leg. And so Gene and I go up there and I meet him. He's like, Ben, you know, I can definitely get you, looking at your x-rays, I can get you like two to three inches of bone. Um, but, you know, here's, you know, the down part is, is that you're gonna have metal sticking out of you for like the next nine months and you're gonna have to turn the screws with a wrench like three times a day. And there's a risk of infection and you're, you really can't do much. And it was like, all right, I, I will do anything to get up and walking, but is there like anything else? Right? Like, it's like, I will go through, like I, if you, if I was going through ranger school and you, and you day one me on day 72 when I was supposed to graduate, like, <sighs> all right, I'll do it. But like, is there any way I can get out of doing that? Right. <laughs> sure. And you gotta ask. He said, yeah. Yeah, and he's like, well, there's this doctor up in Minnesota that does the same the same process and procedure, but it's all internal. And so, you know, the risk of infection is a lot lower. And, you know, not that you should be doing in, like all the same activity that you're doing now, but you, you know, you're not going to be stuck in a bed for nine months. And I was well, like, all right, well. Why not lead off with that? I mean. I, I know. I was like. <laughs> 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 totally. Exactly. <laughs> And so um, he sends my x-rays up to Minnesota to this guy, uh, Dr. Dahl. And I remember I remember getting the phone call with him. I remember being in uh, the apartment that was like one of the SOCOM apartments here at Walter Reed and, and playing with Peyton on, on, the, on the ground and getting the call from Dr. Dahl. And he introduced himself and he said, Ben, you know, I got your x-rays. I would love to work with you. You know, how fast can you get up here to Minnesota? And, um, you know, I, I coordinated all my own travel and got up there as fast as I could and met with him. And, uh, you know, the premise is that, is that if, if, if this, if my finger is like my femur and to be honest, this was probably how long my femur was at the time, what they did was, uh, he, he drilled into the, the distal end of my femur 
Um, he broke it in a way where there was still blood flow going to both pieces of the break. Mm. And then he inserted into my bone what would look like two AA batteries stack on top of one another. And then I've he seen screwed this. them. I've seen yeah. this. Okay. But I didn't so know what that that's what it was. Okay. So he screwed it into either side of the break. And then because it was all internal, there was a radio uh, receiver that he planted underneath my skin that was connected, you know, via wire, uh, like through my hip bone, around my hip bone. Yeah. And I could feel this quarter size radio receiver underneath my skin. So four times a day, instead of me turning the screws of the wrench, I'd put on my stethoscope, you know, listen to the screws, take a radio uh, transmitter put it over the receiver and then flip the, you know, the on switch to the box. And it sent a signal via, via radio signal to the device in my uh, leg and the screws would turn and almost, you know, and it would, it would, it would stretch out the bone at like, you know, 1.1 millimeter a day. Mm-hmm. And so he, you know, he implanted the device up in Minnesota. I come back to Washington, uh, to uh, Washington DC area, Bethesda. And I'm, do- I'm doing this, you know, lengthening myself, four times a day, every Tuesday I would have a standing appointment at radiology and I would get an x-ray to see how the, you know, what it looks like on the inside. Are we lengthening too fast? Are we lengthening too slow? Um, and you know, I would take a, I'd take a picture of the x-ray with my cell phone, send it to Dr. Dahl. He's like, all right, you're good. Or, you know, this week, take it, you know, wait a couple of days this week. Let's like, let the bone grow in a little bit. And, um, you know, fast forward, uh, long story short, it takes about 11 months from start to finish. And I end up setting two medical world records. One's for the shortest stump they've ever done a lengthening on. And then the other was for like the most, for the most bone regenerated on a human. So instead of regrowing two to three inches of bone, I end up regrowing like five and a half inches of bone. Holy cow. Yeah. And so I, which was strong great. bone. I mean, it, it's yeah. capable. Yeah, wow. Strong, regular strong bone. Um, he did input a rod to like replace the cavity and have the bone like regrow around um, really just to help me like speed up the, the healing process. And so that way I could weight bear on it uh, yeah. quicker, which, which, you know, you want to weight bear on a broken bone because it forces it to kind of grow back stronger. Um, Wolf's law. I know all about it. I mean, we could talk all about, uh, I, like I said, I became like a subject matter expert in orthopedic surgery and um, yeah. And, you know, honestly, it's like it's one of these things where it's like at a boy, like I got myself up and walking, but it's because I made myself patient zero. It's an actual process that they do for guys at the hospital now. So they, that way they don't have to go through the same thing where they're like, you know, what the F? Like, I, I, I'm so short on one side. There's got to be something else out there. Now it's like, oh, there's this procedure if you're if you're up for it. Yeah. And I know I know two guys that did it. One of one of which I, I played sled hockey with both both of them. One of which I know did it. He plays on the U.S. team. This kid Ralph de Quebec, um, just like myself now, walking around everywhere. Like I'm sure he uses his wheelchair every now and then, like myself, just because like you know you don't want to be in your legs when you're home chilling out. Mm-hmm. But like he's doing great things, like I'm doing great things, and just because this this procedure. Well, recently you had an opportunity I was reading as well where um, you got to go back and actually play lacrosse. Um, mm. Tell us a little bit about that, getting the chance to really get back into the game again that you love so much. Yeah, so, you know, to be honest with you, I never – so that was that was cool. And it was great to go back, and I played goalie just because lacrosse is known as the fastest game on two feet. I obviously don't have two feet anymore, so I was standing in goal. Um, 
it wasn't it wasn't something where I was like laying in my hospital bed like I really I really want to play lacrosse again because they came back and they're like hey like you know we heard you play lacrosse you played college lacrosse there's something called wheelchair lacrosse um would you like to try it and I was like lady get the f out of here with that I played division one lacrosse you know, like I, I don't want to play handicapped person lacrosse. Like that's just, I, I appreciate the effort and what you're thinking about, but that's not, I, I can't do that. I, I, that's, that would make me more depressed than anything to try and play like wheelchair lacrosse. And you know, the playing, playing with a, in the shootout for soldiers tournament, it was just like a cool thing to do. Uh, one of my lacrosse teammates in college, Eric Minio, you know, like he would, he was a face off guy. I was on the wing, you know, so like we, we played together uh, we were best, we're best friends still. Um, it was just something that we could do, you know, it was like a cool thing that we could do. And sure. he was, he asked me to do it. And I was like, yeah, sure. And, um, so I, I think a lot of times people ask me about that or they read that and they think, they, they think, oh man, it must've been like amazing to, to get in goal, you know, to be on the lacrosse field again. Yeah, it was cool. But I mean, to be honest, there's, I got more into hockey um, like I said before, ice hockey was like my first kind of true sport. And to be able to play that again was, was really, was really kind of like what the thing that I needed to feel like, athlete, like truly athletic again. Mm-hmm. And I loved playing hockey and I got the chance to play, you know, not only here with like a club team and, uh, be, com- compete athletically again. I was able to finagle my way onto the Italian national team and, and play at, at the international level. And that was a great experience. And, you know, now I'm, I'm, I'm really big into skiing and I got into mono skiing. And to be honest, you know, it's because I never really skied before. And yeah. it's an activity I can do that's new. Um, it's fast. It's exciting. Um, it's, you know, it's, I, I feel like it helps me a lot with like my everyday, uh, like constantly keeping me on edge when it comes to learning, you know, staying sharp, walking on prosthetics. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's kind of scary and intimidating, but um, you know, standing on top of that run and you're looking down and you're like, man, this is pretty steep. Like, how am I going to attack this hill? It's kind of like how it is every day for me walking around on prosthetics. Like this is kind of some uneven terrain. Like, let me see how I'm going to navigate this. And once I kind of get going and walking, it's like, oh, this, this isn't that scary after all. And you know, you, you can't be scared to fail and, and to fall on your side or, you know, to drop down on your robot knees and have to be able to pick yourself up. So what happened as far as the Army was concerned? You know, what what did, where were they in all of this? Um, well, I mean, they were they were there helping me out with stuff. You know, it's, I was look, I was lucky enough to be from the SOCOM community. So when one of their Green Berets said, hey, I found this uh, non-FDA approved experimental surgery to do to grow my bone. I need somebody to help me uh, organize my logistics to get up to Minnesota like tomorrow. They're like, okay, you know, great. And uh, I was really lucky that I had great uh, SOCOM care coordinators. Um, This one dude, uh, Marty, I forget his last name, but he's, you know, everyone, all all the older SF guys that I meet, they're like, do you know Marty? (laughs) And, uh, you know, so he's, he's well known in the community. Uh, another guy, Rory, who helped me out, who came from Ranger Regiment, he was always like, you know, if like we were dealing with some, some kind of BS of bureaucratic stuff that came from like the conventional army, I'd be like, Hey man, can you help me out with this? Like, I'm not trying to like play cool guy or just throw down the SF card, but like this, I I know this doesn't make sense. Like, can you just like backdoor me here or deal with the bureaucratic stuff? And Rory would be like, I got it, man. Don't worry about it. Which I I appreciated because my, you know, my job and uh, really everyone that I talked to from the SF community was like, look, you know, 
your job now is to, to get better and, and do what you need to do to get up and walking or, you know, to heal. And uh, I really appreciated that. Um, so they, they were there for that. Yeah. What about uh, your career now? Yeah. So, you know, my first, my, my big fear, I feel like everyone's fear transitioning out of the army is, you know, you, you hand in the dog tags on Monday and on Tuesday, it's like, all right, what now? Mm-hmm. And, um, I, you know, besides waking up in a hospital bed with no legs, like the next, the second scariest thing is like, what am I going to do in the, uh, outside of the army? And for me, I never, I never wanted to make it a career. I was always really in it more for the, uh, the journey, not so much the destination. Sure. I loved, I loved being a team guy and, uh, I was on the fence of, of, you know, getting out anyway. Gina, I had Gina send me like an MBA or a, a GMAT test prep book. Um, cause I, you know, all my, it just kind of seemed like, the, all right, I guess that's like the next thing to do is I'll get out and go to grad school. Sure. And, um, you know, while I was, uh, going through all my therapy and learning how to walk, um, I was also trying to figure out like what was next. And, um, I, I was, I used that time to, to talk to other West Point grads and my classmates and a lot of them were, were going to business school and I was like, all right, I guess I'll, I'll do that. And, uh, I was applying to all the, all the big business schools and I, I remember I was on a phone interview with the Dean of admissions from Kellogg up at Northwestern and I tell her my story and after like 45 minutes, she's like, you know, Ben, I got to tell you, like, you have an amazing story. I would love to have you here. Um, but she's like, I, I got to ask, why do you really want to go to business school? And I was like, man, I, you know, I, I, tip, I, I tiptoed around the question and I gave her a good answer. And after, after we hung up, I was like, why, yeah. why do I want to go to business school? Like I, that's sure. Maybe, maybe I'm not, I'm missing something. And you know, business school is great for some people. And I, I, I just, I felt like I was in a situation where I didn't, I didn't need it. And, um, you know, I, I used my time here to almost to really define as many like apprenticeships and internships as I could, as I could. Um, and just be like, I like, I think I like, you know, I'm an SF guy. Do I want to get into government contracting? No, I, I don't want to feel like I'm sitting on the bench. Like I'd rather feel like I'm in the game. I don't want to do government contracting. I was a law major at school. Uh, do I want to be a lawyer? So I did a month at like, you know, did a couple weeks at like a, a law firm. I was like, no, nah, I don't, I don't want to be a lawyer. You know, I, I, I learned about uh, wealth management and I, I got an in- internship for a little bit at, at a, a family office here in Potomac. And I was like, this is kind of interesting. Like maybe I'll, I'll do something in this realm. And it just worked out that I was, uh, I was using all as much time as I could to, to meet everyone and network. And I just realized networking is the name of the game. Yep. And whatever I was going to do, it was about going out and meeting people getting invited to dinners, like, oh, there's this wounded warrior, Ben, want to introduce you? Sure. You know, I, I would go to a lunch, I would go to a breakfast, I would go to a dinner. And uh, I was out in San Diego, and I got introduced to this cybersecurity company. And uh, I eventually got hired. That was my first job out of the Army, was I was running all the government operations for the cybersecurity company. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like I kind of lied to myself about, well, it's cybersecurity, I came from the SF world, this is like the kind of unconventional thing. And, I just, uh, I, I'm not an IT guy. I, I liked more of the, the personal piece. And that's why I enjoyed the, you know, the sales part of it um, and, and being able to build an organization from scratch because I, I, they had no government business and they, they wanted me to create government business for them. So I enjoyed the, uh, the ambiguity of that mission. Right. Um, 
but at the same time, I, I look, I was like, I'm not into cybersecurity. And I, I, I learned great things about the civilian business world and, and what that is and what I like. And I lucked out that I met uh, one of my best friends who I work with now. He ran all the uh, commercial sales. And so Dave and I worked together uh, while we were at uh, that cybersecurity company. And Dave, uh, Dave came from the aviation world and he was a, uh, he flew for United. He was a corporate pilot, you know, worked for Pfizer, built up, ran their corporate fleet. And he's like, look, I'm getting out. And I think I'm, I've been, I've been wanting to start up this air private aircraft management company. I would love for you to come and be part of it. And wow. I told him, I was like, I was like, Dave, I was like, look, man, I was like, I'd love to, I'd love to do like, we work well together. Uh, you're like one of my best friends now. Um, I would love to be part of this startup, but I got to let you give you a heads up. Like I know how to jump out of planes and I know how to talk to planes to drop bombs. And that's like really it. And he's like, no, he's like, I look, I get it. And, um, I, I know that and I appreciate that, but like, you know, you're, you're a smart guy, you know, it's all, I'll teach you everything you need to know. It's that OTJ, right? Like on the job or sorry, on the job. Yeah. On the job training. And, um, and so it, OJT. it worked out that way. OJT, sorry. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. I, I had a, <laughs> you I had said a it and I was thinking. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, yeah, so uh, I helped start up. I was employee number one with, with Dave and this other guy, Tony Yoder, who was a, he was a, uh, Tony uh, was a, a naval uh, fighter pilot, like Top Gun pilot, taught a Top Gun, FA-18 guy. And, um, we, we just got along uh, great together and, and Dave and I have really built up this company, uh, aircraft management. And, you know, I love it cause every day it's, it's something new. Um, I knew nothing about it. You know, I'm, I, every day I'm learning something new. Um, it's just, I, I meet a lot of different interesting people. Um, you know, we manage some of like the biggest names in Hollywood and, uh, you know, some fortune like 10 type companies, and uh, I still get to travel. You know, I, I probably travel more without legs now than I did with legs. And um, it's just been a great experience, you know, doing the whole startup from from nowhere to now we're we're like a known name in this in the aviation world. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, I'm not surprised by any of that, by the way, um, just because everything that you've done so far in life, there's a pattern here. I mean, you know, it's again, it's kind of that never quit. And here's the quote that I had mentioned at the top of the show that I had read um, that I thought was really profound. It says, I have no legs, but I have to keep going with the mission. What else am I going to do? Why quit now? Yeah, I mean, uh, you read it to me, I kind of get goosebumps, but you know, it's funny, <laughs> I'm the one that said it. It's just, you know, I, I t- it's like, it's like during, you know, talking about selection and why they select guys like, like myself, you know, you're, you're cold, you're hungry, you're tired, but you still have to complete whatever objective they, they told you, you know, to complete, you know, it's, you know, whatever the instructions were on that whiteboard, you know, make sure your rucksack is packed to 80 pounds dry. And, you know, are you going to be able to do that even though it's easy to cut corners and, you know, are you going to continue to keep walking and putting one foot in front of the other, even though you, you don't know how far you're, they're going to make you walk, but are you willing to keep doing that? And I don't know. It's just, uh, I feel that's, uh, that's kind of something deep within my character. Um, you know, I give a lot of credit to me being a, an athlete and, and just being a, a competitive athlete and, and ha- kind of like learning that drive and teaching myself that drive as a high school lacrosse player wanting to wanted to go on to D1 and play Division One lacrosse and really building on top of that and, 
you know, going to the army and building on top of that and wanting to go special forces and, you know, really, really making it through like the selection of all selections laying there bleeding out on the desert. Like, do you, do you have it within you to, to lay there and suck up the pain and, and kind of like stay with it while they work on you and get you on the bird? Um, yeah, just, uh, I, I don't know. It just, it never really popped in my mind to quit. Like I just, I don't, I couldn't even describe what that's like. Yeah. We did a podcast episode recently, and it'll probably air before this one, about the topic of being driven. And um, that's kind of, you know, you, you obviously had some kind of seed planted within you at a very young age. It's carried forward. You've lived through that, you know, and you continue to do that. You've got new roles now. Like you said, you've got your new um, job. You've got a family. You know, you've got different, yeah. your dad. You've got different roles now. The mission's still there. You're going to keep driving on. So Yeah, I mean, that was something I I, I knew. Like I said, when I was laying in the hospital bed, like, all right, I, I got to get off the drugs. You know, I know I got to figure out what I'm going to do for a job. Like, that was definitely like, you know, where are we going to live? What am I going to do for a job? But I was like, let's not let's not worry about that yet, right? It's like, um, like triage. Like, I remember... All, all like the cross training that we would do like with the deltas on our team the, the the sf medics right and like learning about like what triage is and like a casualty would come in and like how bad is he all right he goes over there like all right how bad is he all right we're gonna work on him right now right and then we're gonna get him fixed and then another casualty would come in like how bad is he all right put him over there with the other guy right and um yeah you know i've i got that drive um I just, I, I try and stay a student too and like continually learning because I like staying humble. Uh, I, I, if Gina heard me say that, she'd laugh because she thinks I'm so cocky and arrogant <laughs> and she, she's always trying to keep me honest. But, um, <laughs> but I, I know I don't know everything and uh, just like I kind of always have that in the back of my mind and like always want to learn something new. Yeah. I'm so glad that uh, we were able to get you on the show and finally get a chance to meet one another. Um, hope to do so in person one day. And uh, again, thanks so much for coming on the, the Mentors for Military podcast, brother. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'd love to be able to, I don't know, one day in the future, if we can do this in person, we'd love that as well. But definitely just to meet up in person. You bet, man. You yeah. Have a good one.